great future. We're talking real money. Well, it's just not often that I read the uh, Globe and Mail. <laughs> I just don't read the Globe and Mail very often. It comes up in some of my news feeds once in a while, but I never read it. But this article intrigued me. Oh, by the way, for those of you who don't know what the Globe and Mail is, it's a Canadian publication. And this article was about a woman trying to build a balanced and diversified portfolio. Her name is Stella. Great name. Stella. Anyway, I'm not going to do that. Stella's 57 years old. Stella is a uh, do-it-yourselfer, like a lot of you. And Stella has almost all of her money, pretty much all of her money, in high-dividend-paying Canadian stocks, financial services, utilities, and telecom stocks. $860,000 portfolio heavily in dividend-paying stocks. There's a reason because of the tax advantage of dividends. In Canada, you get a tax credit for dividends somehow. I'm not sure how it works. I don't really understand it. I'm not giving any Canadian advice because I'm I'm not in the Canadian investment business. But um, she's trying to build a better portfolio, a more diversified portfolio, I hope. So the paper goes to an investment advisor at a company called Money Coaches Canada. (laughs) It almost sounds like a a bus line where you're right around getting financial advice. And uh, currently her dividend income is $43,000. That comes out, I think, about to about 6.8, they said. 6.8%, is that right? 43, yeah, sounds about right. Uh, But in this past year, she lost... 15%, including the dividends. So her portfolio went down a lot. Her portfolio is 85% in the financial, telecom, and utility sector, and 100% in Canada. Yet, as the advisor points out, Canada only represents 3% of the world's capital markets. So he made another suggestion, but it's still flawed. You see... Well, I'll get to the point in a minute. What he suggested is she put 15% in cash for emergencies, which is probably a bit too high because cash pays nothing. 15% in fixed income in bond funds, I guess, basically. 35% in Canadian stocks. 35% and then 35% international split evenly between the U.S. and the rest of the international market. He says that uh, she's not going to make much more than 4 to 5%, which is probably about right. And he said it'll cover her spending needs with far less risk. Yeah, but you're not, you're only, you're, you're playing the game halfway. You're not taking it all the way. The U.S. market is 50% of the global economy. Canada is three, and that leaves about another 47% for the rest of the world. You should be suggesting a portfolio of 50% U.S. and 50% international, 47 and three Canada. I, I'm, I won't quibble on the bond thing. I would, but the point I'm trying to make is this issue we have. This is the problem writ large. 
we have a home market bias. We think the country in which we live is the only one in which we should be investing, or at least the one that should get the bulk of our money. Why? Why is that? Is the U.S. market better than the rest of the world? No. Is the Canadian market better than that of the rest of the world? Come on. The Canadian economy is not nearly as diversified as that of the U.S. or Germany or Great Britain. And it's a tiny percentage of the world's total economy. And yet I'd be willing to bet that most Canadians invest very much like Stella does or did, hopefully did, which is probably very much like you do. I'd be willing to bet that the vast majority of people listening to this podcast have the bulk of their money, their equity money, not talking about bonds, those should be in U.S. bonds. Currencies make that far more complicated. You can have international bonds, but I don't think it's as necessary. But it is critical, I believe, to your long-term financial health that you split your money between the United States and the rest of the world in relatively equal proportions. Don't get caught up in this home bias because the international markets have bailed investors out in the past and they will probably do it again. Between 2000 and 2010, if you only invested in the United States, you didn't do very well. But if you'd invested globally over that time, U.S. and international, small, large, the whole gamut, you would have made about 7% per year even in that period, which was one of the worst 10-year periods we've had in a very long time. Don't invest just in your home country. Spread it around and spread it around pretty equally. 855-935-TALK is a number you can call 24 hours a day, 7 days a week to get your questions answered about money. You can also send your questions in, as so many do, to TalkingRealMoney.com. That's TalkingRealMoney.com. And just click on the um, the um, contact page. This is the weekend edition, you know. I just got done doing the show, which will become a podcast on Monday and Tuesday. So I've been talking a lot today. Uh, let me get to a couple of these questions that have come in because they're piling up. Uh, the first one, the subject is invest in what you know. This is a comment, really not a question. There's another bit of, quote, invest in what you know that bites investment advisors and industry experts on the butt all the time. <laughs> the Dunning-Kruger effect. These experts often think they know a lot more than they really do, and that becomes exponentially worse with people who work for companies that are, quote, in an industry, especially a hot one. We see this all the time but don't really know the context, or don't really know context. Remember the dot-com bust? When up to the very last minute, there were hundreds or thousands of tech industry insiders saying that the only possible future was up. On today's podcast, which I think was last week's, you mentioned a possible Kramer contrarian method. Let's <laughs> talk about Jim Kramer uh, and how he's often so wrong. And the... the uh, the correspondent goes on to say, and it's really not a bad idea. He 
and everyone else who missed the signs in 2006 and 2007, and I'll add even 2008, which were predictable from the federal budget in 2002 and 2003 in hindsight. Yeah, they weren't predictable until you look back at it in hindsight, which means they're not predictable. Of a liquidity crisis in 2007 and 2008 is a prime example of Dunning-Kruger inaction. Of course, he's got a lot of good company like your friend, Ken Fisher. <laughs> he's not my friend. We could have a Fisher contrarian, but he doesn't tell us what he owns. Used to. Having the humility to know that knowing a lot also means that there's a lot more to learn is not consistent with being a spokesman or guru or investment advisor or economist. Unless, of course, you're Tom and me. Because... We know what we don't know, and what we don't know and can't know is the future. And if you're wondering, the Dunning-Kruger effect is one of the behavioral biases we talk about a lot. We were talking about the home bias, the home country bias. Well, the Dunning-Kruger effect is people overestimating, this is particularly with people who are specialists in an area, overestimating their knowledge in that area. They tend to to believe they're smarter than they really are. They lack, I think the, the, the Dunning-Kruger paper basically said, they lack self-awareness. And they tend to be people who know a lot, but still don't know what they don't know. And one of the things so many financial experts claim to know that they can't know, they can't know it, is the future. But everybody wants to know the future, so they provide it because you want it, but you can't have it, but you want it. The topic, mutual funds. This is a short one. <laughs> I am considering an investment in mutual funds through USAA, which directs me to Victory Capital. Is this a good idea? Oh, oh, oh. My friends at USAA. Well, they're not really my friends anymore because I'm gradually moving totally away from USAA. I used to like them so much. I never liked their mutual funds, but they weren't as bad as they've gotten. And I'm not talking about from a performance standpoint because I don't really pay that much attention to performance. I'm talking about from a cost perspective. I mean, they're very mediocre performers, but it really irks me that a company like USAA that claims to put their clients first would ever allow anyone to sell a mutual fund with a five and three quarter percent commission up front. Up front. But wait, there's more. Their annual fees on these funds are astronomical. Not just high, but ridiculously high, greedily high, stupidly high, bad for you high. Get this, a bond fund with a three-quarters of 1% expense ratio. Compare that to a Vanguard bond fund at 0.1. They have stock funds with expense ratios approaching 2%. They're averaging, I, I, I can't tell you what their average is because I didn't sit down and go through all the funds, but just looking through the list, oh, wait, I found one. Oh, 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 
found this one. It's five and three quarter percent load, an expense ratio of 3.19%. That's sinful in my book. Oh, oh, wait, I found a worse one. <gasps> no. And see, I just found it right now. They have a fund, an emerging markets small cap fund. Oh, I can't believe they charge this much. 8.02%. They have the USAA name. Well, they don't. Some of their funds have the USAA name on them. This is one of the victory funds. I got to tell you, if, if I was USAA, I'd be hanging my head in shame. I don't know. I don't know what got into them. I really, truly don't. Let me tell you a little story. Um, I have been, I've had my insurance with USAA forever, 30 years, long time. Well, for the first time, and I should have done this, and I blame myself. I, I just, you, you get caught up in, in so much other stuff that your insurance is not something you think about. And so recently we bought a new car. And I went ahead when I bought it from Carvana and I insured it through USAA. But on the car, when I was doing the paperwork, there was a little button on the Carvana website that said, check on insurance. And I went, I got a minute. So I'm going to check on it. So I did. I clicked on that. And I put in all the information on the car. And I got a quote from Progressive that was, get this, about $270 every six months compared to $1,300 at USAA. Well, that got me thinking. I started to put in my other cars. And then I put my house in. And here, let me pull up the number here. I just, I wrote it down because this just happened in the past few days. Is it on this pad or is it on this pad? I have, I have all these notepads and I keep all these notes. Uh, let's see. Uh, oh yeah, here it is. So I changed, I did last week, last couple of, last couple of days, I changed all my insurance from USAA to Progressive and I ran the numbers and I saved, I, I can't believe how stupid I was for not doing this earlier. I saved $6,244 a year. $500 a month. Am I impressed with USAA? No, not so much. Not so much. Really not. I don't know. I think they got a little fat and happy, maybe. I don't know. And, and I talked to the people on the line. Why are you leaving, sir? Um, Because your premiums are ridiculously high? Oh, sorry to hear that. That was the response, not once, but twice. Sorry to hear that. So, thought I'd pass that along. You guys might want to do a little shopping. Do a little insurance shopping. You could save 15% or more on car insurance. Actually, you could save a lot more than 15% or more. At least I did. Apparently because I waited far too long. Remember... We do 
a lot of these, and we do them to help you better manage money. We try to do them at least five or six days a week, sometimes seven. You can call us anytime at 855-935-TALK. You can send in questions. Write them in or speak them in at TalkingRealMoney.com on the contact form. We welcome questions about anything financial. Comments, too. And we also hope you'll share this with others because this is the kind of thing you can share and not dilute it. It just gets better the more people who listen. So tell your friends, tell your family, tell your neighbors. When somebody brings up money, say, oh, God, these guys, they'll help you. And if you have a really complex issue, You've got this big, massive portfolio where you got all these stocks and all these mutual funds, and they're from different places and different accounts, and you're trying to put this hodgepodge in some sort of order, as so many say they want to do. Well, it can take time, and it can take more time than we have on the podcast. So go to vestory.com, V-E-S-T-O-R-Y.com, and set up an appointment with one of our advisors. You pick the date. You pick the time. We'll do a virtual or an on-the-phone session with you. Give you at least an hour, no cost, no obligation, and the best part of all, you don't have to worry about getting a high-pressure sales pitch because you won't. So do that if you need a lot of help. Call us if you need a little, 855-935-TALK. Visit TalkingRealMoney.com and spread the word. And thanks so much for listening. I'm Don McDonald. Talking Real Money. We hope you realize that the information provided on Talking Real Money is for educational and hopefully enjoyable purposes only. Providing personalized financial planning or investing advice takes time, so please consult with a really good fee-only fiduciary investment, tax, or legal advisor. We know a good one. Investing must always involve risk. In other words, you can and probably will lose money at times. Also, as much as you want it, no one can accurately and consistently predict the future. So past performance doesn't tell you a darn thing about what the future will bring. Unlike many other programs that say something similar, Talking Real Money is not trying to get you to buy or sell any financial products or securities. Instead, the program is provided as a public service by Vestry, a fee-only registered investment advisor. Thanks for listening, and please visit TalkingRealMoney.com for more information and disclosures. That should keep the lawyers happy.